There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone and I'm Wanda Wallace. So organizations always say that their competitive advantage is our people. How many times do you pick up an annual report and that's one of the headline news items? Well, according to my guest today, the competitive advantage is, yes, the people, but more importantly, it's the relationships between people. And that's what my guest is going to argue defines the culture. So if that's the case, what can you do as an individual within an organization to improve the relationships between people? Well, there are 15 key things, and we're going to talk about a few of those. So with me today is Todd Davis. Todd is author of Franklin Covey's upcoming book, Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. It's available for pre-order now and will be released in November. He's also the co-author of Talent Unleashed, Three Leadership Conversations to Ignite the Unlimited Potential in People. Now, Todd has over 30 years' experience in human resources and a variety of other roles. He's been with Franklin Covey for 20 years, and he's currently the Chief People Officer and Executive Vice President. Before that, though, he was the director of Franklin Covey's Innovation Group, leading the development of many of Franklin Covey's core offerings that are still part of the company's world-renowned content. Todd has delivered a number of keynote addresses and speeches at industry conferences and all around, including with many of Franklin Covey's clients, and his topics are specialty around leadership, interpersonal effectiveness, and building winning cultures. Board of Directors for HR.com, um, Association for Talent Development, and Society for Human Resource Management. Todd, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for that nice introduction. You just started my day off right. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, I have a feeling we're going to say a lot more about this at the end of the show because there's some interesting points of view you have to offer here, and I'm really looking forward to hearing them. So I want to start with my opening comment here, which is the notion that culture is determined by the interactions between people. Why do you say that? Well, at Franklin Covey, we not just believe, we know through through years and years that this is what we do, that, that culture is in fact your competitive advantage. It's a, we, in fact, we say it's the ultimate uh, competitive advantage. And so to answer your question, really, what is culture? It's, I mean, there, a lot of things contribute to the definition of a culture, including, you know, the spoken and, and often the unspoken values and norms and systems in an organization or team. But ultimately, culture boils down to the collective behavior of your people. It's what the collective group of people are doing. And that is really broken down to the nature of the relationships between those people. That's what drives that collective behavior. So that is, in fact, why I profess and have found time and time again that it really boils down to these relationships. That makes It's a different way of framing it, but it makes a lot of sense. Because if you think about what we've always described in the literature around culture, we talk about the spoken and unspoken rules and processes, 
We talk about what you can and you cannot do around here. We talk about the stories that people tell. We talk about the artifacts that we have give meaning to as being representative of the culture. But those all exist in the interactions between people, in the telling of the story among people, for example. So I just never thought about it that way. I think it's a clever way of describing it. Well, thank you. Okay, so um, tell me a little bit about why you decided to write this book. So 15 things people can do to build effective relationships at work. Right, 15, I say proven practices because for the past, gosh, I've been with Franklin Covey for 21 years, but really for the past 30 years, I've been in roles where I've observed and and coached leaders and others at at all levels, you know, within organizations. And, excuse me, for the past 21 years from the literally hundreds of principles and tools and paradigms found in Franklin Covey's World Class Solutions, uh, I've been in a role where I've been able to identify those practices which I've seen time and time again be the real catalysts for positively influencing and in some cases even changing others. You know, we, we all have more and more put upon us all the time and, and we're measured in a lot of different ways, you and I and everybody listening, but the ultimate measure is by the results we get. And I don't know about you, but unless you're a pro golfer, the rest of us get results with and through other people. And other people are really difficult to change or even influence. And so in my role in coaching others, and, and that includes you know, a lot of mistakes I've made too, I, like I said, I've seen time and time again the 15 things or practices that tend to really accelerate those relationships or, or trip them up. Okay, so I love the fact that we're going to take hundreds and we're going to drive it down to 15. This sounds really good. Now, for my listeners, I'm going to give you a heads up. We won't get through all 15, but I hope we're going to hit some of the highlights. And I'm going to say I I picked some of my favorites, quite honestly. So, but let's start with the end in mind, because number 15 in your book, Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. You say start with humility. So why is that so important? Yeah, thanks you for asking that. It's my favorite, probably my favorite practice. And I I put it at the end and purposefully titled it Start with Humility because we can, we can work on every bit of our, uh, of our um, competencies and skill sets and, and relationships. But if there's this, if there's this underlying, uh, I gotta be right or, you know, I'm not really the one that needs this, but Wanda needs this, or Joe needs this, or Stephanie needs this. It, we're not going to get anywhere. So it all starts with humility, not 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 to confuse humility with a weakness or this subservient, or okay, well, I'll just be the nicest person around and, and bend whichever way the wind blows, but a real grounding in who I am, and I'm confident enough in who I am and what my strengths and weaknesses are that now I can actually understand that along with everybody else, I have an opportunity to get better and to improve, whether I'm the CEO or whether I'm the receptionist at the front desk, that, that, that we're all a work in progress. And so that's the, that's the premise behind this practice, uh, practice 15, start with humility. I like that you said it's not about being weak, and you use this magic word confidence, because I find that it is a combination of humility, acceptance of who I am, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, ability to make admit my own mistakes, but not wallow in them, 
mm-hmm. combined with a degree of confidence so that I'm not just pushed by every wind and whim that comes along. And getting that sense of balance, I find, is really difficult to do. I, I agree. It is. It is an. On, it has to be an ongoing focus. Um, you know, to, to to free yourself from pride or or arrogance or having to be right, and to understanding and reminding yourself, it's actually a strength to to know that I um you know that I'm really good or great at some things, but not at everything, and that there are other people and and my my. My job, my role, whether I'm an official leader or not, isn't to be the smartest, the brightest, to know everything, but it's to be aware of everything and surround myself with, with people who are experts in different areas and be this coordinator of whatever we all collectively want the result or the outcome to be. That was a lot of words, but that's, that's how I feel about humility. <laughs> all right. So it's not about being the smartest and the brightest, which I think is a hugely important but it is about being aware of lots of things and being more of the coordinator than it is being the knower. And for my expertise listeners, that's a major step. Not being the one who's knowing, but being the one who's coordinating. Okay, I know when I talk to people about leadership and I ask them about their most admired leaders, people they've worked for, they really have huge respect for, they will always say that some degree of humility is part of it. But when I'm coaching individual leaders and trying to get them to understand their need to show a bit of humility, they come a bit unclued, as in that's that's showing weakness. So do you have any advice for how to help people get this balance right between humility and weakness? Yeah, great question. It's, it's, it is this there is this careful balance between, well, I want to be seen as credible, but um, so, so if I don't, if I expose my vulnerabilities or my lack of knowledge in a particular area, am I seen as less credible? You know, years ago, prior to the industry I'm now in, uh, I worked in the medical industry and I recruited physicians for a living. And it was interesting, and, and while, while this particular problem I'm going to bring up has come a long way since then, back then there was the real challenge of of certain physician groups or physician specialties becoming so expert in their area but having little to no bedside manner and rapport with their patients. And I read an interesting study, and again, this was 30 years ago, but I read an interesting study uh, that talked about the the level of of, uh, lawsuits, malpractice suits. And while I don't remember the details of it, the the idea of it was that the, the lawsuits weren't based on the actual or potential malpractice that had happened, it was based on the lack of bedside manner that the physician had with her or his patients. And and I find that interesting. I think about that today because a physician, a surgeon, certainly has to be seen as credible in her field or or knowing what she's doing, but but equally has to have the rapport with the with the patient. And and I think that's that just came to mind as you were asking about this balance. Um, of not losing credibility, I'm, I'm an expert in my area, but I'm also approachable, open to, to new ideas, um, you know, respectful, and more than respectful, but, but really um, welcome 
and benefit from and, and synergize, if you will, a popular term at Franklin Covey, with others and their expertise. So it is, I don't think there's a clear-cut definition, well, here's exactly how you do it, but I think it's being mindful of the fact that I don't, I don't need to know everything, and nobody does, and if they say they do, they're pretending, and they probably aren't very collaborative and aren't a very good leader. Uh, it's, it's being aware of what my areas of expertise are, and I hope at the top of that list is the ability to identify who's good at what so I can pull together the right team to get the, the best outcome. Okay, makes a lot of sense to me. I like this idea of credibility. Um, Charles Green, who's been on our show, author of Trusted Advisor, talks about trust as being the combination, the sum of credibility, your expertise, reliability, doing what you say you do, plus intimacy divided by self-interest. And I think this notion that you're talking about humility is somehow a bit of that combination of the ability to create intimacy and to minimize some self-interest in the process. So, Todd, moving on to the, um, I want to move on to some of the others, but do you have any advice for how to be sure you start with humility? Well, I think I think you check yourself every day. I, um, I in fact, uh, I don't know how much time we have, but, but I, I, when I talk about the book uh, everywhere I go, I begin with a, a, a play that was rich, written by the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre uh, back in the 1940s. He wrote a play called No Exit. And very quickly, the play begins with these three individuals in the afterlife, and they're in a room with no doors, and the windows are completely bricked up, and they really don't like each other. And because they don't like each other, they try and change each other, and that only escalates their frustration. And they slowly start to realize that hell isn't a place, but in fact, hell is other people. <laughs> and and uh, people that won't change or do or behave the way we want them to. And another interesting aspect of this play is that in this room that's bricked up, no doors, there are no mirrors. So these people who are so busy trying to change each other, even if they wanted to, they don't have the ability to look at themselves first. And so in answer to your question, great leaders and leaders, you know, we're all leaders, or can be. It's a choice, not a title. They, they look in the metaphorical mirror every day and say, what do I need to change? What do I need to do or model differently? As Gandhi said at best, you know, be the change. And, and the most influential people I've ever met, I think any of us have ever met, certainly leaders, they are, they are models of the very thing that they're hoping everyone else will do. Okay. So it's that constant look in the mirror in any way you can get from feedback, from 360, from coaching, from any process that lets you look in the mirror. Okay. So lest we talk about only one of the um, your 15, let's go to the first one in your book, which is this, I love the phrase, wear glasses that work. What's that about? Yeah. Wear glasses that work is all about the paradigms that we hold. When I was in the second grade, um, is when I got my first pair of actual glasses. And I didn't realize how blind I was until I got those. And I remember the day putting those on many years ago. I remember looking up and seeing the actual leaves on the trees for the first time. Prior to that, I could see this green kind of you know, mass or blob up there. And I honestly wanted I thought that's what everybody saw when they looked up at the, the leaves and were up on the trees. That's the principle behind wearing glasses that work. It's seeing things as they really are, versus what we have convinced ourselves they are. We all have, you know, a life full of experiences and, and have determined 
from those experiences that this is how it is. This is how a particular situation is. This is how this person is. This is how this job is. And, and sometimes we're correct, and sometimes we're just so steeped in our own perception, our own paradigm, that we're, we're missing a lot of opportunities. You know, have, you, have you ever discovered that your version of the truth wasn't so true or complete after all? I know Regularly, I yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so wearing glasses that work is saying, step back, consider. And that's the word that just comes to mind every time I teach this concept. Just consider other possibilities. Consider a different point of view. It doesn't mean you flip-flop and have to you know, go change whatever somebody else is thinking, but consider there are other possibilities. Okay, I love that one. Consider that there's other possibilities. I know when I'm coaching people and we're dealing with a particular problematic relationship somewhere around them at work, and they have made up a whole story about why that person is doing what they're doing, what their underlying motives are, um, how they've done it in the past, and they will keep doing it again and again and again. There's a whole script around this one. And oftentimes, they're verified with friends who are more than happy to say, yeah, you're absolutely right. And so now, whatever view I have is just laid in stone. Mm -hmm. Getting them to open up to it might be possible that there's another interpretation. Boy, is it hard work. But when you get there, the doors break open for what else you could do that might make a difference in a relationship. You, you, that is so well said. And, and as those doors break open and it happens once, then you, then it, for me anyway, and for others that I've coached, it all of a sudden starts opening more and more doors. And again, I don't mean that all of a sudden I start changing everything I held to be true or accurate, but, but I do start considering the possibilities. I have a, 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 an exercise and activity that I do with people that has really helped them on this particular practice, and that is, that, you know, I ask them to consider or talk about the situation, whether it's uh, you know, seeing something very differently from a coworker or a particular circumstance, and I have them list all of the reasons they feel the way they do about that particular person or that situation. So they list all those out. And then I say, now circle or underline those things in your, in your big diatribe here that, that are facts. And by facts, I mean you could show them to Todd and Wanda and anybody else, and everybody would agree. And, and the things that they're able to circle or underline are pretty minimal. And, and that's okay. So I say, okay, well, so here are the three facts. Anybody that you talk about with this would agree with you. Now, all of these other things, while they may be true, they're actually just really strongly held opinions that you have. Let's pick one or two of those and just give me, you know, give me a minute here and consider that that might be an inaccurate opinion, and let's dive into that and explore it deeper. And it's this, it's this great way to kind of unlock this idea of, what you just said a minute ago, wow, I was thinking of all of these as facts, and in fact, they are not. <laughs> so, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I often say to people that if you get out of the adjectives or nouns when you're describing someone else or a relationship and you go to the verbs, you're probably mm-hmm. in fairly safe territory because then we're talking about observable actions, what you said or what you did. Yeah, great advice. Okay. All right, Todd, we're going to take a break. With me today is Todd Davis. 
Todd is the author of a forthcoming book in November, in fact, Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. Now, Todd has spent the last 20 years at Franklin Covey in a variety of roles, but most importantly, he's been able to look at the hundreds and hundreds of pieces of advice that Franklin Covey offers in their suite of content and has distilled that down to 15 things that he sees day in and day out in coaching and in observing people that really make a difference in your ability to influence and to get the results you're looking through through and to change the culture you're looking for. So when we come back, we're going to continue with a few more of these 15 um, practices. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Todd Davis, and we're talking about Todd's book, Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work. You can find more about this um, at his website, www.getbetterbook.com. Now, Todd has distilled years and years and years and years of experience and wisdom from a boatload of people down to 15 things that he thinks makes the most difference in relationships. And I remind you that at the outset, the notion is that the culture 
is actually ultimately determined by the relationships between people. So building stronger relationships just is good for everything we're trying to accomplish all the way down to the bottom line results. All right, we were just talking about two major, the first one and the last one of the 15. The first one is wear glasses that work so you get a perspective of what is reality in the world versus the story you've told yourself about what should be reality. And then the 15th one is to start with humility, and it's this balance between the things you know you do well and not so well in combination with some confidence. All right, so Todd, let's move on to one of my other favorite ones, which happens to be behave your way to credibility. Explain what you mean by that. Well, behave your way to credibility is practice three. And it's the idea or the notion or the practice that we don't receive credibility just because we ask for it. And credibility doesn't come with a title, as I learned earlier in my career, uh, or it doesn't come just because I know that I'm capable and, and competent. It comes with behaving and demonstrating and taking the long-term view until others have seen my behaviors long enough, and that can vary, to, uh, to feel comfortable with and have the trust there that, in fact, I am credible. Credibility, again, is a combination of many things, but it, it really boils down to the amount of character and the amount of competence that I have. And it requires both, and one does not make up for the other. For example, Wanda, if I am one of your best friends, which I hope to be after this podcast, but if I am one of your close friends, remember your birthday every year, know the names of your pets and family members, send you gifts, uh, honest, you know, trustworthy, you'd have me watch your house while you're out of town, all of those things. And yet... When I come to you and offer to pack your parachute for your first skydiving lesson, mm-hmm. no matter how much character I have and how much you trust me to watch your house, you, you might want to know just how much parachute packing experience I have. And on the flip side, on the competence, you know, it probably might give you room for pause if you learned that the person who did pack your parachute for your skydiving lesson had recently been acquitted of a manslaughter charge because they were, you know, of a technicality. So, you know, if something's off about the character, it it causes concern, and certainly if something's off about the competence. So it absolutely requires both character and competence. I like that one because, you know, I may trust you to have knowledge about a particular processor system because you know it better than anybody else in the world, but it doesn't mean I trust you beyond just that immediate knowledge. And that's exactly what you're saying when something's on the line, like my parachute and my life, it takes both credibility and our character and competence. So one of the things that I get from people a lot of times is they've just taken over a new role, often were a peer and now have become the manager of a group and trying to gain the credibility of the group that they are now the leader. So you said play the long game. So what's your advice in those circumstances? Yeah. Well, I want to back up for you because you, you did a great job. of. I so appreciated you asking me about the bookends to the, to the book. Practice one, wear glasses that work, and practice 15, start with humility, because they both play into to what you just asked me. Wear glasses that work, practice one, is practice one for a reason, because the way we see things, including our job as a new manager on a team, affects everything we do. So the way we see each of these practices, specifically behavior to credibility, is going to influence what we do. And then practice 15, the last chapter, starting with humility, 
remembering to have humility through everything we do is what's really ultimately going to make us effective and influential as a leader. So in that situation, when I start out seeing myself as a new leader, in your example, and remembering that no one expects me to know everything, they expect me to be continuously learning and being not just considerate to be nice, but considerate of others who have been here a long time because they might have some knowledge I don't have. And so I'm thinking about a new leadership role I was in a while ago and taking that first bit of time to really um, understand each member of my team and what their strengths were, what their ideas are, how they think we could improve. That, that is a, a huge first step into behaving your way to credibility because that says to the team, oh, wow, this guy's not Mr. Hotshot that's just going to come in with no prior knowledge and tell us how to do everything, but he or she's going to take the time to really understand, maybe not agree with everything, but understand where we're coming from. So that's, that's I mean, we could talk all day about this, but that's a first step into behaving your way to credibility. You asked about taking the long-term view. I've been at Franklin Covey for 21 years, and about 16 years ago, I was put in the chief people officer role, responsible for human resources and all of those things. And, and one thing I noticed in wanting to make sure I was adding value and being effective is that the hiring and, and approval process of new hires was all re- run by the CEO. And I, I thought, well, this is interesting that he would take his time to approve a new hire, whether it's a part-time receptionist or a full-time, you know, senior person. And so I went to him, and his name's Bob, and I said, Bob, what would you need to see in me to feel comfortable with me taking this off your plate? And he was very diplomatic, but, but I could tell he didn't want to change that process at all. He said, oh, I think the process is just fine. Well, I went to my boss at that time. His name was Bill. And I said, this is frustrating for me. I was put in this position, and I've done this in other companies, and I'm trying to free up his time, and yet I don't feel like he trusts me to do it. And my friend Bill, my boss, said, now, remind me how long you've been in this new role, Todd. And I said said proudly, two weeks. (laughs) And he said, and you think that Bob should feel complete, like, you know, your credibility is completely flushed out with him in two weeks. And he didn't need to say anything else. I thought, okay, good point. So over a series of months, I, I then learned how to develop and create and behave my way to credibility with, with our CEO. Sorry for the long story. That's great. So this notion of credibility is I have to look at both my competence and I look at my character, sort of a bit of my intent. But I'm going to take the long view. I'm going to admit what I don't know, which is back to the humility, start with humility. And I'm going to make sure that the way I see things actually is clean and clear and crisp and not biased. And assume that with some time, we'll get there, but not worry about it too much. Is that a Decent summary here? That was a great summary. And, and just with that time, keep checking in. I was just coaching somebody on this yesterday and saying, you know, go to the person or people that you are working on building, increasing your credibility, and say, hey, here's what I'm focused on. Are, are you seeing this? I'm not here fishing for compliments. Are you seeing this? And what else would you steer me on or guide me on to, to continue down this path? And so don't be afraid of, of you know, checking in and making sure that you're, in fact, making progress on on what you're trying to make progress on in the form of credibility. Fabulous. All right, let's go to practice number four. Play your chosen roles well. What does that mean, and why is that important? Yeah. Well, I'll start off with a question. Have you ever found that success in one area of your life comes at the expense of another area? (laughs) No, I've never seen that before. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we're all, again, being asked to do more and more and juggling so much. And, again, the premise of this book is that relationships 
while a nice thing, they absolutely make all the difference to the results we're getting. And, and so relationships being the crux of this, think about the roles you're playing and what are the most important roles. I was in, uh, I was in New York um, many months ago waiting to see a play. I had a free evening one night, and I was out in the lobby reading this critic's review of one of the actors in this play. And he gave her a five-star review, five out of five. And as I read the review, he talked about the reason for such a high rating was her presence and her authenticity in the role, her, how present she was and how authentic she was in the role. And again, this was a play, but it, it got me thinking about my most important roles in both my work life and in my personal life. And what kind of a review, if you will, would my critics give me in those roles? Um, you know, what would it take? Am I doing the things to get a five-star review on an ongoing basis? At Franklin Covey, we've been in the, the business of productive, effective results and relationships for many, many years, you know, 28, 29 years now. And, and what we have found is that when anyone, when you are, when you are taking on more than five to seven roles at a time, you're likely disappointing a lot of people. Uh, so I might have the role as team leader, of coach, of colleague, friend, parent, and those are all very meaningful in my life, very meaningful, important roles. But if I, if I try and take on 20 or 30 or 50, it's, uh, I, I'm probably doing a lot of things mediocre at best. It's not, this isn't about friendships or you know, commitments I make to people, but it's about the most important roles in your life. I'm, I'm talking a lot here, I apologize, but it's whittling down what are you know, five to seven of the most important roles, both professional and personal, and then thinking about and, and working through what is the most important contribution I want to make in that role. Okay, and so it comes down to then the contribution I want to make in that role. That's you have right. a lovely exercise on this one. You just sort of described it there where you get people to list down all the roles that they have, and then you sort of say, you know, what do I think my contribution is in that role? And then you ask people, I think this is right, to reflect on what their critics would say about their contribution in that role. Did I get that right? You got that exactly right, Wanda. And this is – I appreciate you bringing up this activity because it – it changes now. That sounds dramatic. Changes my life, but it does change my life in these relationships. So, so what I've done, what I do for myself, what I have people do is identify these five to seven roles. Think about one person that's influenced or impacted by you in that role. So, if I put down team leader and I'm leading, you know, a team of twenty people, pick one of those people. Or if I'm a parent and I have three or four children, pick one of those children. And then at my retirement party or at my funeral, which I hope is 100 years away, <laughs> if that person were giving me a five-star review, so to speak, what would be two or three sentences that I would hope they would say? And, and I have people, don't just think about this, actually write it down. When you take the time to write down the, that sentence or that paragraph about what I would hope, you know, if Wanda's my best friend, what I would hope she would say about me at my retirement party or at my funeral, it it causes you to start doing things a little or a lot differently in that particular relationship. Fascinating. I don't know how we get it down to five to seven rules, though. I guess that's yeah. a statement about my the state of my own life. That's an exercise I'm going to have to go to. Okay, so let's go to number five. Again, one of my favorite ones. See the tree, not the seedling. What do you mean? Why is this one important? Yeah. Well... 
the idea is that with, with people, and this isn't just for people in official leadership positions, but really anybody, you know, do you, have, do you often conclude that what you see is what you get with people? Are you quick to decide that somebody doesn't have what it takes? Um, I work with a lot of great people here at Franklin Covey. There's one particular leader who has a lot of great skills, but she, as we have a big recruiting department that recruits for all of our, our spaces, recruits for her, and unless they present kind of a already-made, ready-to-go, doesn't-need-any-coaching candidate, <laughs> she, she bypasses it. And you know, she, she really doesn't want to, I don't think she consciously thinks about this, but doesn't want to invest in the person. She wants them to come ready-made. And so she misses out, she can only see seedlings. She misses out on a lot of mighty oaks, if you will. I'm carrying the metaphor a little bit too far here. And so the idea is see the potential in others. See what they could become. This particular manager, while, while they're making uh, great strides and, and improving, they're behind where a lot of the other teams are because they're, they're continually looking for these perfectly formed people uh, you know, with perfectly formed skill sets, and those people don't exist. We're all in this process of getting better versus the other managers who see great potential and have the skill set to coach that potential and are really winning with their team. So that's the, that's the principle behind seeing the tree, not just the seedling. So, Todd, I think that's really interesting. One of the things I find with a lot of managers is this, um, they're perfectionists themselves, and especially when they've got a lot of expertise, and they're looking for people around them to be absolutely perfect. So, And then they don't trust, and they don't delegate, and they can't turn over responsibility. And that's exactly what you're talking about, seeing the tree, not the seedling. Correct. Yeah, if I'm, if I may what many call a micromanager, not because I'm a bad person, but because I just want our team to get such great results, and so I, and I don't trust necessarily that anybody can do it as well as I can, then I, I hover over, and this goes back to wearing glasses that work. It says, you know, the way I see things, I see my team is less competent than I am, so I hover over, I course correct, I'm, I'm critical, and then they're kind of afraid to try new things. Uh, they only do exactly what they're told. There's no, there's no creativity there, and the results we get are, are mediocre at best, if not poor, and then I say to myself as the micromanager, see, I've got to do this, I've got to hover more, and it's this self-fulfilling prophecy versus me seeing my team as capable and competent and these people with all of this potential, all of these mighty trees, allowing for, you know, giving guidance, but allowing for some mistakes, and, and sure, maybe I could do it faster than they can, but that's not my role as a leader. It's to help them develop it and, and get the results we want to get. It's just a, a, a different paradigm. Yeah, I love the, I love the framework. Um, I know all too well how hard it is, though, to, to be able to tolerate a few mistakes that might happen along the way. And I guess we're back to practice number 15, start with humility. Exactly. Just on, on this particular practice of see the tree, not just the seedling, you know, the late Dr. Stephen Covey, one of our founders and the best-selling author of many books, including The Seven Habits, said, leadership is communicating to people their worth and potential so clearly that they come to see it in themselves. And that's just at the heart of this particular practice, communicating to people their worth and their potential so clearly they come to see it in themselves. Wow. That would change how we lead. <laughs> yes, so it would. Leadership yes, it is has. communicating to people their worth and their potential so clearly that they come to see it themselves. Right. Wow. Okay. I guess if we stopped and asked, back to your notion of look in the mirror and wear glasses at work, 
what is it that I'm communicating to the people I work with every day about their worth and their potential? That's exactly right. Am, am I, do I need to win this race or do I need to help them win this race? Okay. All right. Well, we're going to take a break again. Um, with me today is Todd Davis. The book that we've been talking about is Get Results, the 15 Proven Practices that help you increase relationships at work. And I think I just messed up the subtitle. But Get better. <laughs> okay. Get better. You can find the book at www.getbetter.com. And as you've been hearing, Todd has been, spent the last 20-some years at Franklin Covey in a variety of roles, and that has been drawing on both the Franklin Covey experiences as well as his own insight in working with people about distilling down the 15 practices that make the most difference that are proven. When we come back, we're going to pick up on three more of these practices. So we'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Todd Davis. The book that we've been talking about is Todd's work on the 15 proven practices that really make a difference in building effective relationships. The book is called Get Better. You can find out more about it from www.getbetterbook.com. I love this. So Todd has spent 20-some years at the Franklin Covey looking at some of the world's best practices in how do you build effective relationships and has taken all of that knowledge and distilled it down to 15. So the ones that we have been talking about very simply are start with humility, which is number 15. Number one, 
wear glasses at work. Behavior weighted credibility, which is both competence and character what driving credibility. Play your chosen roles well and see the tree, not the seedling. So I want to go now to one of my absolute favorite ones, which is avoid the pinball syndrome. So explain what you mean from this one, Todd. Okay. Thank you, Wanda. Well, avoid the pinball syndrome, I think I wrote it just for me. It's the, it's of the 15 practices. I'm, I you know have room for improvement in all of them. This is the one I struggle with the most, and I think most of my colleagues do. Uh, many of your listeners may remember back in the heyday what pinball games are. Uh, there are certainly, you know, a hundred apps out there now with pinball games, but this is the old pinball machine. You can still find them sometimes in, in strip malls and, and uh, retail outlets, but where you stand at this big machine and it has the bells and the buzzers and the whistles and you have these flippers and the goal is to keep this ball up bouncing around and going as long as, as, long as you can. And while it's exciting, it's exciting because of all the stimulus that's happening, in the end, the ball drops down because gravity wins out and, and goes down the hole and, and the game's over and you see how many points you score. That's a fun game. What happens in life, particularly in our professional lives, is that we get addicted to the pinball syndrome. All of the activity, you ever get to the end of the day and you're exhausted and then you think back and say, what did I accomplish of real worth or value? It's because we get addicted, I, I lead the pack in this sometimes, of all the activity, the hustle and bustle and the, the adrenaline rush we really get from checking those things off the list and being in meetings and on the phone and doing all these things when we have unintentionally not focused on what, is the imp- what are the important things in the midst of all of this urgency. Certainly see that. In fact, it's so easy to go to work every day, be extraordinarily busy, have every minute occupied and accomplish absolutely nothing at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. So what's the anecdote for the pinball syndrome? How do we stop doing this bounce, 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 bounce? Yeah, well, I will tell you after 21 years at Franklin Covey, it is an ongoing pursuit for me, but I have had weeks and and more more weeks than not of being more successful at this, and it happens when I begin the week, and for me that's uh, on a Sunday night, I begin the week by laying out my week, looking at what's already scheduled or blocked out, you know, think kind of those things that are immovable, and then deciding, okay, at the end of this week, what would have me feel satisfied that I've made significant progress on the most important things? Blocking out the time, it's really just pre-planning, planning that week, and then being true to what I've planned. Say, you know what, I've got to allow for some urgencies that are going to come up, I've got to allow for this and that, but by the time this week's over, I'm going to have made movement on these things. That, that planning, both mental and then actually down on you know, whatever your planning device is, whether it's on paper, whether it's in your, in your phone or on your Outlook, making that plan before the week begins uh, contributes to those weeks where I've been most successful at not finishing the week and having another week of a ton of activity where I'm exhausted but, but having accomplished little to no you know, value of those things that are most important. It's interesting. One of um, the people that I've worked with says that in his role, in a senior leader position, he tries to keep 50% of his calendar open mm-hmm. because much of his job is about being available to people for whatever craziness turns up. You know, whatever mm-hmm. needed advice, whoever needed him to be somewhere, solve a problem, and so forth. I think most people would kind of be shocked at the notion that you keep 50% of your calendar open, but what if we get to keep 15% of our calendar open for urgencies? 
Yeah, great, great suggestion. And and it's, you know, the definition of insanity. We keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. And yet it sounds like this wise client of yours realized, wait, this is the nature of my job. And so clearly this is what, the, you know, the, the results I get are by coaching and helping these people. And I have no idea what's going to come this week. So I'm going to block out 50% of my time. It's a great, great suggestion. Just keep it clear. And um, one of my other executives also says about this one, that you should know every morning when you come in what's the most urgent thing for you to get done that day to move your major objectives forward. Mm-hmm. So that you're going to move, not going to get them all, but what's the one or two things you're going to get done today and do that first thing before you get distracted by email and meetings and dozens of other things that consume your capacity. Yeah, all those fires that are going to surely come up during the day. I think that would, I think it's a very difficult one. Um, avoid the pendulum syndrome, and I think you're right. It's addictive. I love how you say that. Okay, let's go to practice number eleven, which is get your volume right. Explain. Thank you. Get your volume right is, in short, it's about our blind spots and it's about our go-to strengths. So, what I mean by get your volume right. Any strengths, I don't know that strengths become a weakness, but they certainly start to work against us. Any strength, any strength taken too far starts to work against us. So, for example, uh, I, have the, I have the strength, and I'll say this with humility, <laughs> practice 15, I have the strength of being very accommodating, something I've always been known for. Um, probably didn't have enough friends as a child, so I just wanted to accommodate people. And that can be a good thing in that I'm a people pleaser. I want to help people out. That's the intent of my heart. And yet, taken too far, I start to do a mediocre job at a lot of things. I, I get caught in what my friend called the thick of thin things. I get caught in the thick of thin things. So in my attempt to kind of be there for everyone or pick up the ball or whatever, uh, I do a lot of mediocre I think I can do a lot of things at a mediocre level versus choosing a few things and knocking it out of the park on those things. Still being, you know, responsive to people and being diplomatic and, and helpful, but not trying to take on too much. So that's an accommodating strength taken too far. I'm working with an individual right now who is very effective very effective. They execute like nobody's business. They get things done, but that strength taken too far, they come across as abrupt. People don't like to work with them. You kind of have to walk on eggshells around them. They had no idea that was the byproduct of them being so efficient and effective. And so it's, it's getting the volume right, dialing it down in some cases, or not even going to a particular strength when that strength isn't working for you. That's the premise of this, of this particular chapter or practice. I certainly know that when I am talking, when I'm doing interviews and we're trying to do a coaching process, and I start, you know, always when I'm talking to someone who's going to give me feedback on an individual, tell me about their greatest strengths. I think we all do that. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, 90% of the time, we'll start with the greatest strengths, and it will be followed by, but you know, which is where the strength is being overused or where there's a dark side of the strength. Or where it's starting to kind of not work in these circumstances. So any of those. I firmly believe that your strengths can become weaknesses if you take them too far. I I agree. And I see, again, back to the relationships, I see this being one of the biggest trip-ups that people have, including myself. They're called blind spots for a reason. And because we can't see them, this particular person I was talking about who who allowed their efficiency strengths to to have them come across as abrupt and not, you know, pleasant to work with, they had no idea 
when they came to me and said, I just want to know why I'm continually being passed over for these different opportunities. And because they sincerely wanted to know, and I shared it with them, they weren't offended. They just had no idea, and they were able to start slowly course correcting and, and, and turning down the dial on that particular strength. Great. All right, Todd, we just got a couple minutes left, so let me get to the last one that I wanted to talk about today, which is number 13, make it safe to tell the truth. What do you mean and why is that important? Yeah, great one to finish up on with the premise that we're all, we all have an opportunity to get better regardless of how accomplished or successful we are. There's always room for improvement, but we can only improve if we know where we need to improve. So do you make it safe for others to tell you the truth? And and if you don't, then you probably think you're doing just great, but nobody nobody dares to call you out on you know or tell you what you really need to improve on. And so in this practice, I, I have learned over time ways that we can make it safe for others to tell us the truth. For example, if I go up to somebody who's listening to this webcast right after this podcast and say, hey, what did you think of me on the podcast? Well, I put them on the spot, and if they're my friend, they're going to be caught off guard and say, oh, oh, Todd, I think you were just great, versus... If I say, hey, Fred, tomorrow I'm going to be on this podcast with the, the famous Wanda Wallace. Would you mind listening in? And, and I certainly want, you know, hopefully, hopefully you'll get something out of the podcast, but I'd also like you to be listening about my skill set in responding to Wanda, in what I could do better, in, in where it maybe got a little boring or whatever. I'd really love your feedback on this because I, I'd really like to get better. I'm asking the same thing, but very, two very different ways of asking it. And the second way, of course, I'm making it safe for Fred to tell me the truth. He knows that I really want his feedback. So that's just a quick example of ways we can make it safe for others to tell us the truth if we sincerely want to get better. Okay. So just to hit a highlight on that one, so when you ask questions like, what do you think, tell me what I can do, Tell me how I can get better. They're so open-ended. I think the answer to that is everything's fine. But you have to ask questions in a way that really shows to people you really do want their candid and critical feedback. That's right. I'm not here fishing for compliments, which a lot of people do, and that's okay. We all need validation sometimes. But if I really want to get better, I'm going to give plenty of notice. Say, hey, I'd like to meet with you in a couple of days, Wanda, and I'd love you to come prepared with telling me, you know, what I do well, what's working well in our relationship, but what could I improve on? What could, where could I do better? Could you give that some thought, and could we meet in a couple of days? That's another example of making it safe for people to tell you the truth. Okay. Well, Todd, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you very much for being a guest. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this. For my listeners, the book, again, is Get Better, 15 Proven Practices to Build Effective Relationships at Work, and the website is getbetterbook.com. I think the thing that still strikes me out of all of this is the notion that the culture is determined by the way people interact with each other and that there are 15 things. If we do them all in combination, they're going to make a dramatic difference in the relationships that we have. So, Todd, again, thank you very much. And join us next week for yet another episode. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.